Welcome back to the Ambitious Minds podcast. I have to say, I was completely overwhelmed by the support that I received last week after launching episode one. Your support was so much greater than anything I could have possibly imagined. And I'm so grateful to each and every one of you who played your part by listening and sharing this podcast. In this episode, I'll be chatting with Julia Matsia, a Premier League businesswoman and crucially, my girlfriend. Julia has an incredibly impressive CV, having worked for two of the Premier League's most successful football clubs, Manchester United and Manchester City, before moving back to Italy to work for AC Milan as Global Head of Partnerships. She recently returned to the Premier League as Head of Commercial Ventures at Arsenal, ticking off yet another top Premier League club. Julia has experienced exponential career growth by embracing new challenges every few years. She was voted one of the 30 under 30 next-gen leaders in the sports industry. She's a force of nature at such a young age and is certainly destined to be a future leader. Expect to learn how Julia stumbled into this career, what made her decide that being an entrepreneur wasn't the route for her, the characteristics she believes makes a great leader, overcoming imposter syndrome and using therapy as a tool to accelerate her career. I also owe Julia a great deal of gratitude for helping me bring this podcast to life. She's a constant source of inspiration and the most effective person I've ever seen at getting things done. Without her, this podcast would have still been an idea inside my head. Finally, one last thing before we hear Julia's story. If you can think of anybody that would benefit from a bit of inspiration right now, I would love it if you would share this show. Julia, welcome to our kitchen island and welcome to the Ambitious Minds podcast. Thanks for having me. So before we get started, I actually want to say thank you because this would have just been an idea in my head if it wasn't for you and you have really brought this to life and sort of given me the kick up the arse to actually make it happen so all I can say is thank you I'm very grateful and um, yeah without you it wouldn't have happened thank you that's very nice so aside from encouraging me to create a podcast what do you do I work for a Premier League football club I work in the commercial side of the business um, so in the office as some would say of a Premier League football club. I've been in football for 10 years. I've been at two, well now three, Premier League football clubs and one Serie A. And what do you do for those football clubs? I've spent the last 10 years um, specialising in the partnerships side of the business. So every logo that you see on the front of the shirts or on the pitch side, boards, um, interview backdrops, that's that's what I specialised in. That's what I've been doing. Um, various different roles in the strategy, in the selling and in the management of that. But in essence, it's finding, scouting, um, selling, convincing, and then delivering for the partners that want to be associated with the biggest sporting entities in the world. So really, just to summarize, you are bringing in money for football clubs via front of shirt sponsorships or the advertising you see around the stadium and that sort of thing. Yeah, not just front of shirt. Um, We have loads of global deals so we have every football club will have on average between 20 and 40 global partners or regional partners as well Um, but in essence yes sponsorship is the biggest revenue generator of all football clubs so football clubs have three uh, match day income which encompasses ticketing and anything that happens at the stadium as well as retail and licensing sales and so all of our shirts and our merchandise uh, sponsorship and then broadcast and sponsorship is the lion's share wow okay um, so that's quite surprising because i think that when 
you think about football clubs, you you don't really think about them generating money through sponsorship. You think about it being through probably ticket sales, first of all, and player transfers and that sort of thing. Yeah, I think, so each club has, the thirds are divided a little bit differently, depending on who you are, depending on which country you play in. So the Premier League clubs over-index massively on broadcast because the broadcast deal for the Premier League as a whole is really, really high. So... Um, even teams that are 10th, 11th, 12th in terms of um, kind of the the revenues as a whole in the Premier League are still getting more broadcast income than some of the Italian and the Spanish clubs. Just That's just because the distribution of the Premier League broadcast is so high. Um, so if you compare those to some of the European, continental European clubs, theirs is higher. Um, but in essence sponsorship especially for the big for the top six in the premier league but the top 10 um european ones is your biggest driver because um ultimately that's almost your untapped potential of course it's tapped because there's a certain amount of 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 brands and logos that you are able to display but um clubs have found a way over the years to add you know airline partners headphones partners um some even have uh hair transplant partners so (laughs) physically prominent in in the turkish leagues (laughs) no (laughs) even some in the premier league have a turkish hair transplant partner how how does somebody get into that job so in my case a bit accidentally i i actually studied something completely different at university and and was convinced that i would go on and be a diplomat and study international law um, when I was at school, I, we, I was really into current affairs and politics and history. And so I decided to go study international relations at university because that's what I thought I wanted to do when I grew up. Um, I was on my way to take the LSAT, which is the law school in the U.S. admissions test, because I thought I wanted to go do international law in the U.S. because I thought in my head that that was the way to become um, Secretary General of the United Nations because uh, that was the goal. Um, a train broke down on my way there and I was two minutes late to the test and I had this sliding door moment where, in effect, someone closed the doors in front of my face. Um, and I was in the middle of London because I was studying in Brighton at the time, so I'd taken the train from Brighton and uh, this very, very visual sliding door moment happened and I was crying in the streets of central London outside St. Paul's on the phone to my mom saying what am I going to do with the rest of my life this is it's it's over now it's over I was 21 at this point um so not to say that you don't know what you want to do at 21 in life because some people do but I had no idea what could have then come and at the time, I was working with Volleyball England, which is a federation in the UK. Uh, I played a lot of volleyball growing up. I played at university, but I was also helping out as a volunteer to increase participation in, in, in universities because it's a very um, low-attended sport. And I started thinking, why don't I do this for a living? Why don't I? Sport has always been my passion, and I've always been in and around the organizing side of sports. So even when I was... At school, I would work with like the coaches and all like the travel logistics to get us to the matches and all these things. And I was like, maybe this is a path. So maybe sports is the way that I do it. And I think, and I think I, a little bit through lack of 
not knowing how to get into it and what to do next. And I also thought I needed a bit of an academic bridge. So I signed up to do a master's degree uh, in sports management. Um, and then I applied for a few internships and I got into football and I've been in it ever since. So were you um, always into football when you were younger? Yeah, I've always loved the sport. I've always loved watching it. I played a little bit when I was in school. Um, I I was always kind of intrigued by everything that goes on behind the scenes of what is it that actually happens outside of what you see on television. Um, and that kind of curiosity got me to thinking about the different components behind it. But it wasn't really until I went and studied it that I realized how much more there is behind it. And it mm. was really kind of during my master's that I was like, oh, sponsorship sounds interesting. Um, do, they, also- do they teach that then in on the master's? Yeah, they teach... Uh, how to, essentially how to monetize different types of sports. Yeah, yeah. So they, they there's different... You, you look at different models. You don't just look at football because it wasn't just football. So we looked at the NBA. We looked at... American sports in general, we looked at Olympic models. So we just looked at various different sporting entities and how they fund and um, operationally deliver against them. And it was very rounded in the sense that it wasn't just revenue. It was also operational delivery. It was theory. It was a lot of things behind it. But sports still now, like it's not really an academic subject. Like you can't necessarily study it effectively. It is a little bit of a it's an economic trend fundamentally it's a demand it's a supply and demand situation so you you need to understand who your fans are and you then need to give them what it is that they want and 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 you have to have this rapport where they are so 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 loyal to you they're not customers they're fans they have your brand tattooed on their skin and they've been season ticket holders since they were kids like in some football clubs in, in Europe, um, the first thing that a family does when there is a newborn is they go and they sign them up to the waiting list to become a season wow. ticket holder. Um, my my dad know. wanted to name, I think all of, all of us, he wanted to name after Spurs players. Yeah, so this is ingrained deeper than just, oh, I'm an Apple loyalist or like I'm an Android loyalist. Like you wouldn't, some people tattoo Apple on, <laughs> on their bodies, but you wouldn't naturally do that so you have to respect that relationship with the fan and in doing so you need to understand you know how it is that i can grow the club and bring in money and monetize it without impacting your relationship with your supporters so it isn't per se academic you just need to understand how that balance and that mechanic works and sponsorship is a good way of doing so because you're not asking much of the supporter in essence you're asking a lot of brands you're telling Mm. a brand to associate themselves with with your logo with your brand with your crest and in doing so by bringing in revenue you're giving back to the club you're giving back to the fans so hopefully it's additive rather than detrimental um but over the certainly the 10 years that I've worked, there's been a lot more um, education, master's, bachelor degrees, etc. that have popped up in the business of sport. It, it just means that more people can get access to, to yeah. getting in. Just take us back to 
when you were playing sport, how much of a role do you think that that played in your career trajectory as it is now? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, so first of all, I always played sports from a very, very young age, pretty much since I could walk, jump, run. I, I, I was signed up to do sports. And I think that that was an extremely formative element of my life. I, I associate a lot of the attributes that I have to having played some degree of not professional but competitive sports mm. growing up. Um, I did a lot of individual sports at the beginning and I think that that was very, um, it taught me a lot in terms of resilience and hard work and making sure that you're always trying and like if, you know, kind of life knocks you down, get back up and keep going. But I hated individual sports. I really didn't like it. And then I, when I could choose what I wanted to do, I always gravitated towards team sports and that's what I really liked. I also saw a statistic not that long ago that said that women in like FTSE 100 companies and leadership positions all had some sort of like semi-professional or competitive sports background. And I don't think that's a coincidence because as for me, sports gave me so many of the attributes and my work ethic and leadership lessons and teamwork lessons lessons that I now have and I use every day. Um, So I think a massive part of it. But then also what it did give me is an an untapped, unconditional love for the sport because it gave me so much. I almost felt like I wanted to give back to it and that's almost why I decided to go into it. I just, I felt this... um, endless sense of gratitude but also like it was this just like always fountain of positivity that had such a good impact on my life and I think you see it all the time like you see it in young kids you see it it's it's the most unifying thing that there is out there like there's wars that are going on but yeah it unites people all over the world there's pictures from um I think it was World War One or World War Two, where like German and French soldiers like took a break from fighting, like on Christmas Day or Boxing Day, and then they played like a game mm. of football, like just outside the trenches. Like it is literally the most unifying force that there is, um, and so therefore I felt such a strong attachment and such a strong passion towards it that when I decided I need to work now and I need to spend the rest of my life doing something. Um, from nine to five, Monday to Friday, I want to do it with something that I actually enjoy and that I actually feel like I could get a lot out of it. So that's that's part of the reason why I got into it as well. Yeah. No, it is really interesting when you talk about the sort of, yeah, the, the role that sport has to play in giving people a pathway. So particularly those from developing countries, it's often a route to prosperity or a route to financial freedom. Um, And you look at the South American players, almost all of them started on the streets and then they were doing it for their families and that sort of thing. So they have this drive to make something of themselves. And and you've seen some famous stories in the past where they talk about that as as shaping them and and just giving them that hunger the whole time Mm -hmm. to try to be successful. Yeah, and it goes beyond just the individual, I think. You know, as I said before, a lot of my passion previously was in diplomacy, international relations. 
sport is a vehicle for soft power in essence and for diplomatic um, relations if you think about United States and the and, and Russia during the Cold War were com- constantly competing with who was winning more medals at the Olympics um, you have you know the black power salute that happened uh, on the Olympic podium that like, th- there are movements in history that have been forged from sports um, you know the taking a knee as a stance against police brutality and and and, and in support of um, black lives and just in general ethnic minorities there's there's so much that sports does also as a vehicle for change and as a vehicle for cultural advancement um, that doesn't just stem with the individuals that are trying to propel themselves out of a bad situation but they're trying to propel or be the catalyst for change and be the representative force outside of something difficult and I think I never really thought about it until recently how much that was attached as well to all of the things that I was I found important so I always say I used to work in diplomacy and I kind of feel like in a roundabout <laughs> way I got there uh, because it is in essence soft power it yeah, is sport has a is a vehicle to impact a lot of people well it's in the television every single weekend and it's in the press every single day and our athletes are in the press every single day and now with the rise of social media and with your own channels as an athlete as a club as a league as an individual you can portray your message and bring fans on a much more intimate journey than you maybe would have done before when it was just television and when it was just like press conferences etc so i think there's this entire new shift in the world to add this layer of advocacy and and you know like visibility as well because it it is visible and some some people some athletes do, don't want to have to be mm. in that situation and i think it's almost like they're pressured to have a to have a duty to have an impact yeah or to have an opinion more like and i think it's it's difficult i empathize with them you know most of them are 20 years old and i i had to forget lot, that yeah exactly i had a lot i had a lot of ideals and i had a lot of beliefs when i was that age not that i'm much older but when i was in my early 20s i had a lot of beliefs and i wanted to be vocal about it but it doesn't mean that everybody wants to be vocal about it um, but you do have to take your responsibility seriously. But it is extremely, extremely difficult. Um, I know we were talking about this recently. Like we watched the David Beckham documentary that came out, and the entire country turned against him because of a mistake that he made on the pitch. A mistake, a, ju- a, a, a lack of judgment that he made, and he was twenty, mid twenties, yeah. early twenties. Nobody else in any other career gets that level of scrutiny no absolutely not um do you feel that level of scrutiny from within a football club too i don't personally feel it but that's because i'm not at a level where my name is attributable to anything specifically that goes out into the public domain but i definitely feel it in the sense that we never switch off um i always joke but like football is 24 7 every single day of the week every single day of the year we play boxing day we play on christmas eve we play on new year's eve um you know there's there's 
information that is out every single moment of the day. So we never switch off. So I find like there is a lot of scrutiny around what we do and the decisions that we make as an organization and the repercussions that it has on fans. Not so much on my person, but it it, it isn't like you making a mistake on a spreadsheet <laughs> and only your surrounding circle yeah. noticing and, and being impacted if you make a mistake on our side like the ripple effect can be much wider so i feel it in that regard i also feel it like there are moments there are days where like you've had a terrible day and you just want to go home and like you worked really really hard on something and like it goes on twitter and then people start attacking it and it can be quite demoralizing because you're like i've spent the last three months working on that project and, and sometimes you just want to go home and switch off but because it's football and it's always on, uh, whilst we're recording this podcast, there is a football match on the TV. You can't come home from work and switch off. No, not when your significant other is a season ticket. <laughs> but no, that's that's right. Like football is actually a lot of other people's way to switch off, and it isn't mine because yeah. that is work. And that's one of the things that I never, that I hope I never get to the point where I feel like it's a burden or it's a chore, yeah. and I never want to forget. I love to be reminded sometimes, like whenever we're hosting fans in the stadium, especially kids, just how mesmerized they are when they walk through the door or a player walks by or a manager walks by. And there's this magical enchantment about how they feel. And sometimes when you are in the thick of it, you forget how special all of these things are. I will walk through the training ground one morning and and not really take in because it's just business as usual and you're just going to a meeting and stuff and you know it's it's nice to be reminded that the power of sport and like the enchantment that it has on people especially kids um i think right now there's one thing that makes me really really excited is the growth of women's sport especially women's football and i'm getting excited about it and i've worked in the industry for 10 years and i walk through the doors and like stadiums are filled out to come watch women players play football and i get excited about it so i never want to in 10 years time down the line when we're working more on this and that is not novelty but that is every day forget that that's impactful because that's you know especially being a female loving football loving european football clubs you go to a game, you watch a game on television, you see a player that you love, celebrate, and as a girl, you're like, well, I can't be them. I can support them, but I, I can never put the shirt on and play. And now, when young girls go and they watch Leah Williamson play or they watch Alessia Russo play, you, you can be them, right? You can mm. actively visualize yourself and say, like, I can be that person as well. And that's powerful. And so I think that that's the beauty of sport. That's like the, the, the mystique that like you don't ever want to lose. Yeah. And, and like the part of the reason for this podcast is to try to create inspirational stories. But right there, you've just created an idea of this very inspirational character. And it is amazing what's happening in women's football right now because you do, it's a much more family orientated sport. And you are no doubt inspiring a generation of of young girls to go on to be professional footballers now yeah we're hopefully professional sports business women yeah well equally um what was your what's your ambition from your career where do you want to get to um 
for a very long time I used to measure my success in job titles and measure my success in like arbitrary levels of where I used to get to and I used to that that used to help me a lot in propelling my career forward and in, in, in probably in reaching a lot of the milestones that I have reached so far because I was actively visualizing like I need to do this in five years I need to do this in two years etc I think my measure is slightly changing and I'm still in this space of change where it's a little bit less of a job title or a specific role but it's a little bit more on impact so I want to do things where it helps people ideally young girls but people in general get into sport and have access to sport and enjoy sport in a way that I did Mm -hmm. and it helped me in in changing my life so whether that is at the top of a football club and continuing to inspiring fans and creating pathways where it's easier to feel like you are closer to the team or whether that's ending up doing grassroots sports development I don't know I've not decided that yet but it needs to be something that is closer to getting more people involved participation is the hallmark of growth of sport and you've spent most of your career sorry all of your career so far working in football do you think that the that will be the only sport that you work in or do you think that you'll be branching off into some other sports i don't know i love football um a lot and i think that it has a lot to give me and i still have a lot to give it so i don't i don't think i would i would consciously want to leave it but i also there's so many more sports out there and there's so much more that you can do so i don't really want to ever preclude it to myself i think as long as i feel like there is progression in my life as long as i feel like i'm always learning something different then that's what i would always prioritize just talking about progression can you just talk us through the progression in your career so far so how did you get into football what was your first job and then what were the sort of iterations and and clubs you've worked for the different roles you've played in those clubs and to where you are now yeah so well, i mean i started as an intern i started in as an intern as a support function to the spot to the sponsorship department and i basically just worked my way up from there i didn't really take a super linear path i um, was always in the business of sponsorship but i tried different things and i moved almost like horizontally and um, a little bit just dotting around trying this gaining a little bit of expertise and and moving forward and I think that I've kind of at every point collected little bits of experience in my toolbox that I put in and then I forged my expertise in my path Um, one thing that I did do is I always identified people around me that were punching above their weight and that were in position that that I that I recognized as superstars that I recognized as people that they themselves were going to go further and do things and I gravitated towards them and I tried to learn as much as I possibly could and I also tried to be somebody to them that helped them so if there's one thing that people from this podcast take kind of from my story is I've always tried to identify people that were senior to me and I would try to identify what their problem was and I would try to solve it and I and I think I've forged my career out of being the problem solver in the room like I still to this day and a lot of the times I've had very undefined and slightly ambiguous roles and the roles 
that I've played in the last couple of places that I've worked has been kind of this hybrid like nobody knows the answer like Julia will know the answer or Julia will know how to figure out the answer and that that was by design that was not by accident I, I always intended to put myself in the situations where like if there wasn't a clear delineation of who was doing it I could put my hand up and I could help solve that problem and I really think that that's helped me um, push myself forward in my career because at the end of the day we're all people and I, I see this now with me line managing other people and having people in my team like the people that I gravitate the most towards are ones that help me solve the issues that I'm facing and so therefore that was always the way that I dealt with kind of my growth and, and my opportunities is like okay this person has a problem I will be the the, the solver of this and then problem. you build up a lot of trust in doing that as well absolutely because you always become the person that says like i got this don't worry about it like leave it with me sometimes i had no idea how to solve the problem most of the times in fact and like there were instances where i was calling friends and people in tears you sometimes being <laughs> like i have no idea how to do this but i said i would do this and i just have to figure it out and i think that that's you know, if you do a scorecard of like pros and cons in people, that's my pro. I just like, I just figure it out. Yeah, um, I think that if there's one thing that, one piece of advice that I could give to people, it is when somebody asks you to do something, particularly if they're asking you as your manager or somebody, don't say you don't know how to do it. No, just say yes and Fig- figure it figure out. Figure it out, figure out how to do it. Ask anyone. And, then, and add value to them. Ask anyone, bar your manager. Yeah, exactly. No, always don't ask, push it back up the chain. No, always ask for clarification. Make sure that you have all the information. So I'm not suggesting that you, you know, try and trial and error things that you have no idea. Like ask for clarification and instructions and then go figure it out. Ask anyone else. Ask your colleagues. Ask people that have been in the company for a really long time. They have amazing connections ask google ask your friends ask chat gpt now i never used to have it but now i have it like there are so many things that can help you like that has to be your first port of call yeah and find try and find mentors in the workplace too because they are the people that can help you and yeah. all you're doing is growing your network i i found having not necessarily mentors but like i've had people close to me in the past who have once i've gained their trust of given me so much responsibility and elevated me and and put me in the position where I am today um but I would never have got there without working really really hard for them taking problems away from them and then them giving me the opportunities afterwards and it isn't even just the people directly above you like it can be people around you you can forge a reputation for yourself even amongst your peer group or amongst senior people but in like the vicinity of you so other teams that know that if there is an issue you are the person that they will come to Mm. to sort it out i think that's powerful and i think it speaks to a lot of positive character traits inter like first of all troubleshooting problem solving like creativity being able to think on your feet so it teaches you a lot of things i learned this skill actually from school like we were in i was i was in a privileged position where I went to a very good school to an international school and a lot of the work that we did um, I think the main differentiator that I see in like the school that I went to is that a lot of it was critical thinking and presentation skills and problem solving and like standing up and doing things and like I bullshitted my way through a lot of stuff but it taught me how to 
think on my feet and mm. figure things out. I think one of the key messages there is push yourself outside your comfort zone. Totally. Particularly when presenting. And I used to do something in work where we had these junior investment manager forums and one of the investment managers gave the, the junior people the platform to be in a room and pre- presenting to their peers. And some people decided not to go to it. And then others who embraced it, stood up, did a presentation, were the ones that you've seen go on like leaps and bounds and they've, they've gone on to be very successful investment managers. Hmm. I think another thing that I would say is super important and it is part of who I define myself to be is I just work very, very hard. So yes, solve people's problems, but also don't be cutting corners, like always put in the work, always put in the graft. I grew up, you know, as we said before, playing sport, but I also grew up in a household where I had two entrepreneurs in my mom and in my stepdad um, who had a successful business. And at times that was obviously challenging because they also owned the same business. And so there were um, kind of elements of being in the vicinity of people that were hyper successful that was intimidating at times and you had to really kind of figure out what your trajectory in life would be in order to kind of pan out alongside them but also what it taught me is just work really really hard like my work ethic comes from them they never stopped they never have stopped till this point and they probably will never fully retire um just out of interest why did you decide not to go into the family business and instead pursue a completely different career? Well, I just didn't, I wasn't in love with what they were doing and I was very lucky that neither of the two of them pressured me into doing it and they let me figure out what it is that I wanted to do. And I also think that I'm somebody that I give 150% when I'm really, really into what I'm doing. And if I don't like what I'm doing, I do the bare minimum necessary to do a good job, but I don't. It doesn't mean that I don't do it, and it doesn't mean that I don't do it well. I do it, but I but the differential in my output between something that I love and something that I don't is 150 to like 90. So the 90 will still get me through, but the 150 is really the thing that you see is, is I, a stark differential. I heard something on a podcast recently, and I think it's so important, and it was saying... If you're good at something that you don't like, imagine how great you'll be at something that you love. Yeah, exactly. And I I even see it in menial tasks of things that I do now. There are certain tasks that I love and I just like pour my heart and soul and all my hours into. And then the others where you're like, don't love this, but I still have to do it. Um, So I just didn't love what they did. And I also, um, I think it, it also slightly put me off owning my own, company and and being an entrepreneur because you know when you live with two people that work in the same thing and all of their assets and uh work and you know a lot of financials are tied into the same thing there is a degree of jeopardy in it because if it goes down it goes wrong so that adds a level of stress to your relationship and to your working relationship and if you sprinkle on top of that the fact that they work with the stock market it means that there is a level of volatility and, and instability that is extremely stressful so and, you know, just thought you'd date somebody who, who also works in that profession exactly but as long as that we don't work in the same <laughs> no but what 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 i saw is you know sometimes 
they couldn't help but take it home because of course because the, the two of them are partners their partners in business their partners in life they have a family they would come home and you know sometimes my sister and I would just sit at dinners and and would would hear these sometimes uncomfortable and heated discussions around um, work decisions because it was impossible to leave it at the door and also because it was their thing it was their you know professional baby that they had developed and so I think that put me off being an entrepreneur owning my own thing so maybe that's a negative I don't know I think it's a positive because what it makes me is it makes me really hungry to be as established and as high up in established organizations as I possibly can and that's my calling and I think that that's okay I don't think that there is negativity in not wanting to own your own thing is if you know what you're doing yeah you, you've done a very good job of progressing up the corporate ladder very very quickly but you have worked in I think every one of your jobs so far for about two years and then you've moved on and you've seen a lot of success from that so some people for example would say you should have a career where you spend a long time there and they they discourage you from moving around too often they say it looks bad on your cv but that's something that you've done and it's worked out really well for you Hmm. i think that the notion of staying in a job for a really long time and not moving up or moving up every couple of years is seen as a bad thing i think we're moving past that stigma i think it's it's okay now to catch opportunities and change and pivot and really like try to reinvent yourself at every step one thing that i would say though that i did consciously in all the steps that i took was i never tried to do it for the wrong reasons and every time i did it i tried to close a circle like i feel like i gave a lot of myself to wherever it is that i was working Um, And I don't think anybody of my previous employers could look back and say like, oh, she was only in this for herself and she didn't give us a lot of herself for the advancement of the company. So I did it because I just am very driven. And as I said, I'm very visual. So like I had arbitrary calendar dates in my head or like yearly dates in my head that I wanted to achieve certain things by and those kept me on track. Um, And that helped push me the other thing that helped push me is that certain people told me i couldn't do certain things and there is nothing that motivates me more than someone telling me i can't do something and so um, i would go for that extra job or i would interview for that or i would put my hand up for another task or opportunity and then that ended up creating and spinning off into something like career is so much by luck than it is by design i I would also i'm going to counter this point now because you say it's by luck and not by design but we went back to the the network earlier on the 30 under 30 you in the in the two job the two most recent jobs that you've had they approached you so you may not have even been uh looking to leave at the time but people from your circle had recommended you to some very senior people at those two football clubs but that's why i think if you work hard and people know that you work hard and you solve problems for them and they know that you're a problem solver and you don't come at it with too much of an ego in the sense that you're here and you're here to do a great job for the club that you're in or the company that you're in and for the people around you and you're a team player like people want people like that around 
that's what I want around me, right? And that's what I've always recognized. I, I really always make such an emphasis on trying to create a positive lasting impression about me towards the people that are around me so that in the, the sports industry is tiny, but the world is tiny. Like it is by luck because you could be, you know, sitting next to somebody at a football match that could be opening a door for you that you didn't even know could be opened. Like, you know, you sat, you gave somebody your tickets and that created a potential networking opportunity or a potential but client. There, there is somebody in mind. Um, he doesn't know this yet, but he's going to be a guest on the podcast at some point. Exactly. Um, I met him at a football match. Uh, I put a ticket up for sale on Twitter. He messaged me. We've stayed good friends ever since. Um, and he's absolutely killing it in his industry. Um, and he's one of the people that I want to come onto the show. So it is a bit by luck. You just need to, when you are in those lucky situations, be doing the right things and going through the motions so that you portray the best version of yourself outwardly. And which is why put yourself out there, network, sign up to the 30 under 30 thing as much as you think it's cringy. Like do it because I did, right? Like I have massive imposter syndromes when I sign up for certain things right before we started recording this podcast. Put yourself out of your comfort zone because it will manifest things to you that will then come to fruition because of your work ethic and because you work hard and because you do the right things. Like, I really believe that we're entering a new dawn of work and leadership, especially where people that do the right thing and people that are hard workers get rewarded because leaders are far more conscientious now they're far more concerned about people around them and doing the right thing and less dictatorial and less authoritarian and there's less ego in the workplace there still is don't get me wrong like it is very much present but i think that you will outrun them in the long long run if you do the right thing so that's that's how i always see myself and my position in in my career is look around be the best version that you can be. And if something isn't working out for you, don't be afraid to say that it isn't working out for you because I went for jobs. I went for promotions, internal promotions, and I wasn't given them. And that infuriated me out of my mind. And then people were telling me, oh, but you know, you're so young. Oh, uh, you can do this for another few years. Oh, you need a few more gray hairs on your head. Oh, this, oh, that. Like all of these stereotypical phrases that are like, oh, you can't possibly know the next step because you've not done this for long enough. No, like, fuck that. Like, if you know what you're doing and you know where you're going, get there. Be humble in the pursuit of that and and be ready to learn. But don't let somebody tell you that you need to, that you're not ready for it if you feel like you're ready for it. So like, you know, put yourself in those situations, challenge yourselves, go for that job. Like, don't let the imposter syndrome win in your head. Apply. What's the worst that can happen? You don't get it. Okay, we move on. But like use that to always propel yourself forward. The other thing is like I've had moments where I've been absolutely devastated about jobs that I didn't get and I couldn't wrap my head around it. In my head, I was like, I was the right person for this job. This was perfect for me. It was this job description was written for me. I didn't get it. Four months later, I got a much better opportunity. Mm. This is why I say it's by luck. Like, you don't know this. 
yet, but something better is around the corner. You just have to keep working. Yeah, be patient. Be patient. Not too patient. <laughs> no, well, no, clearly not in your case. Um, you said earlier on that you sort of pick up on things that uh, of people around you and you learn from them. Are there any characteristics that you've seen in some of your peers? Characteristics that they have that you thought, I want to be more like that. Yeah, I I spend a lot of my time psychoanalyzing people around me and people above me and trying to get snippets of things that I want to uh, do emulate or not do and not emulate. Um, the number one thing that I would say has always really stood out to me is uh, emotional intelligence. So people in a room that can pick up sensations and can pick up changes in tone and changes in like atmosphere in how a room feels are the most successful people in business not just in my business but in business in general i had some i have and i had some um people above me around me below me that are really emotionally intelligent and can really pick up the shift of tone or the or like eye contact with people and pivot in a room you know i'm in a lot of sales meetings right so like being able to react to who you have in front of you is extraordinarily important so that's really important from from like a, a doing business well perspective but what's also really important is managing teams and managing people like i really think as i said before gone are the days where we like bulldoze and like we have this like tyranny of an approach of leadership like kindness and emotional intelligence and like knowing when to be tough but not unfair um is is the utmost skill set that i've still got loads and loads and loads to learn um but that's the number one thing that i would say is 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 always impresses me and i always try and emulate number two thing is um doing the right thing I think and I try and I always try and live by this whereby like you could look at a decision that I've made from a business perspective and maybe say that that was the wrong call and it lost us money or it wasn't the right route that we went down but I hope that people can never say about me that I didn't do it for the right reasons or the right intentions that there was never malicious intent in what I did or that it was never backed by like a degree of information and like logic and common sense to where I was going at it because every time that I've been in a situation and somebody has taken a decision that I haven't agreed with the decision but they've explained it to me in a way that I know they did it out of like sheer it's not goodness but it's 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 goodwill and like good direction and morality then you're almost unattackable because you did it for the right reasons that's number two and then number three is like unwavering work ethic like i've been in rooms where senior people have said to me like oh you know i work 40 percent less than i used to work before and it's great and then i i have leaders that are in the trenches with me like fighting with me and like i respect that so much of them because they will never ask me to do something that they aren't ready to do themselves mm. And I try and be like that. I would never ever, well, I hope I don't. And if I do, please call me out on it. Like I will never try to 
I will always try to be in a situation where like anything that I ask somebody to do, I'm willing to do it as well, or I've done it before and I know how to do it. Um, because I think there needs to be a degree of like accountability around the place. So those are the three things. Yeah, I I resonate with that last part in particular because I think coming from a working class family, it's something you're not too good for anything. Yeah. And, I, and I think that you've actually told me about this in the past about the the All Blacks team, and maybe you can share the story instead of me butchering. Yeah, it. the the All Blacks have these like commandments with which they uh, recruit players, but also live their lives. And one is you're not too big to sweep the sheds. Mm-hmm. I, I butchered that probably, but the sentiment is like. Not even the manager, not even the captain, not even anyone is not good enough to pick up the socks at the end of training and put them away. Like all of us are in it together. All of us are going towards the same thing. And the best leaders that I've ever had around me are those people, are those that if I've been struggling, they've been like, let me take this off your plate. Like I've got this, I can do it. So I think if there's a lesson is be that to other people like you don't have to get to the top to be that to people around above you like you can be that to your teammates like just be a really really good teammate that's again it's a sports analogy but it's like be the person I don't like to be the one that bangs in the goals like I'd love I love to assist (laughs) like I love to be I love to help other people do really well and yeah. I love us to do well as a team like I love people to love what they're doing like and I think that will stand you in good stead as a as a manager as a leader and I know that you want to get all the way to the top and if throughout your career you can be continuously pushing people on and trying to elevate them I think that you'll be viewed from the inside and the outside very positively for doing that yeah I hope so <laughs> um, you work in football it's a male-dominated industry. What's that like? I think it was it was more difficult when I was starting out. And like, as with anything, life is evolving. Certainly, um, going back to Italy, like having grown up... I grew up in Italy, but I moved to the UK for uni. And then I started working in the UK. Um, and then I moved to Italy. And like, there's a big difference between Italy and the UK in the way that females are portrayed and seen in the workplace, especially in football. Italy is a little bit behind so there were more instances and situations there which were a little bit more challenging to navigate Um, but I mean it isn't anything that is extraordinarily different from what women really deal with in the workplace every day like there's stereotypes everywhere there's preconceptions there's institutionalized misogyny and patriarchy and things it's difficult sometimes when other women aren't pulling for you I find that the most infuriating and the most heartbreaking um, when women have paved the way and pushed and gotten to certain positions not even senior positions but just like they've pushed to get there and then they don't leave the door ajar for you or for others that I find that infuriating I would like to be able to be somebody that helps out women coming up but I also want to be someone that helps out people that just haven't been through the regular path so like if you haven't been to university it doesn't mean you shouldn't be able to not get a job in sports everyone's opinion is so additive to the conversation every single day especially in sports where our athletes are from all different backgrounds yeah all different religions all different countries all it over must the be world one of the most egalitarian industries in the world from an athletic 
perspective. From an athletic perspective. Yeah. yeah. Which is why I think like the business needs to be reflective of that as well. But I think that of the whole world, to be honest with you, like what you see outside needs to be what you have inside corporations. Like the percentages of what you see outside need to be reflective. If it's skewed, it, it, it is an egalitarian representation. Yeah. And I think that, you know, more needs to be done in terms of the the football side and seeing more women on boards and CEOs and that sort of stuff. Um, hopefully you're going to be there one day as well. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Um, just one final question before we before we finish up. What advice would you give your younger self? I mean, I think she knows it already deep down, but I kind of would like to validate her in knowing that when people tell you not to do something, do it anyway. Um, prove them wrong. Like my biggest driver really and my biggest propeller has genuinely been people telling me I can't do things. I know that maybe sounds really um, negative and maybe not so inspiring, but like I think people project their own life and their own experiences and their own insecurities or their own trajectory onto you. And it doesn't mean that you have to accept that. Just because people tell you, oh, you're so young, you still got loads of time, like, don't worry, don't do this. Like, yeah, don't be dismissive towards people that are giving you genuine advice. And if they're telling you things that you need to assimilate to learn to then slightly tweak how you are and course correct to go forward. But don't accept people that tell you that you can't do something because it isn't standardized or usual. Like, I... I lost so much sleep when I was when I was younger and when I was pushing for it for people that were telling me that I wasn't ready to do this even doubting myself I used to always I do this to you all the time like I will walk into a meeting and I don't know that I can do it and then I walk out of it and I'm like I crushed it and mm -hmm. you're like yeah I know <laughs> but I didn't know that and now I know that so I would just tell my younger self like believe that you're gonna crush it and it will be fine this was one of the first things that I picked up on when we first started chatting and uh it seemed so evident from the outside that like you were destined to be some somebody very special and there was like this like belief that was lacking and over the years i've seen that change and i've seen you grow and i've seen you become more confident and i think that element of self-doubt or the imposter syndrome has faded over time and you maybe you feel that you still have it sometimes but and I hope people listening to this as well will also hear the same. You're a very talented person and you come across as very impressive when you first start speaking to you. Um, personally, I think you're going to go right to the top and I hope you do. Um, yeah, CEO of Tottenham Hotspur on the way. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you for that. I think I still have imposter syndrome and I think it's healthy to have it. I, I would dread to think that I will ever get to a point where I unequivocally believe that I can do everything because then that's when narcissism and like your ego comes into play and I don't think that that's healthy but I also don't think that it's healthy for your imposter syndrome to sabotage you which is what was happening mm. before there were a lot of things that I and I I worked through this going to therapy like I I got to a point when I was in Italy that I had hit rock bottom um and I joined in a role that I was being told by people daily that I couldn't do and 
that I was bad at and that I was like, it was an affront on my person. And I learned later because of their insecurities, but it's very, very hard if you're already a critic of yourself um, that already has imposter syndrome to then hear validation of said negativeness, right? So I went to therapy, which by the way, I recommend everyone in life should do. It should be like a health screen checkup at the GP that everyone is mandated to go do because your brain is an important organ in your body and in the same way you would do an EKG test to your heart every few years, you should go to a therapist every once in a while to just have a chat about your brain and how you feel and difficult situations. Yeah. If we're, if our, I'll put it this way, if something goes wrong with our muscles, we see a physiotherapist. If we break a bone, we go to see a surgeon, but we don't apply the same logic with our to brains. To our brain. And you literally said that same thing to me and that's what pushed me to go to therapy because I was at a point where I was like the sabotage is so intense that I'm now believing other people as well so I went to therapy and therapy was difficult but also very rewarding and what it did is it like it it held up a mirror to my face to work through and talk through what this imposter syndrome was and if I felt these things about myself then I could recognize them in other people. And if I could recognize them in other people, then I could empathize with them as to why they were being mean and dismissive to me because it was an insecurity that was existing in their life. And so then I got into this like enlightenment mode for a few months where I was almost feeling bad for the people that were being mean to me because it was a... I would walk into conversations where people would be complaining to me about these individuals and I would feel empathy for them where I would say, I wonder what's going on in their life that they feel the need to put me down because of it. So that was a major life change, like light bulb moment for me to basically say, okay, let's think about what people have going on in their lives and why they act and react in certain ways. But to go back to my original point is I don't ever want to lose elements of not being sure if I can do things because I think it keeps you grounded and I think it keeps you on your toes as well. I think the biggest danger in complacency is thinking that you can do everything and not prepping or not going into it with a little bit of adrenaline or a little bit of rush to be like, okay, I can react to any situation. So that, I hope, never goes away. And I think that everyone needs to not try to eradicate their imposter syndrome entirely. But I think if you feel like your imposter syndrome is so damaging to you, like talk to a therapist, talk to a friend, like, you know, vocalize it, it helps. Yeah, and thanks for sharing that as well because it's not easy, I don't think, admitting that you've you know, gone through that journey, but I've done it too. I've, when I was feeling down and stressed and anxious about things, I also saw a therapist help massively. Um, and I think that you can always frame it in a different way that it's um, it's almost like coaching as opposed to yeah. therapy they're helping you to perform better well I, I actually listened to a podcast about somebody that works with the New York Yankees as a performance coach but a mindset performance coach and in essence it's a therapist but what they do is like in the same way that I have a strength and conditioning coach at the gym I also have a strength and conditioning coach for my brain to Mm -hmm. overcome certain hurdles athletes need it all the time like if you've missed a penalty for a very very important match 
like you need to be able to shake that off in order to perform again and not let that cripple you and so therefore like the work on the brain and the work on like being able to overcome these things to then be a better version of yourself and be more resilient and move past it sometimes you can't do that entirely by yourself and sometimes your coach as in like your manager your line manager your friend your boyfriend your mom your dad they aren't enough for that like you need an external source that is a professional well, they're not qualified to do that exactly like you need a professional to help you navigate certain situations um so i think that really that was that was a big um accelerator moment for me in my career is when you just kind of admit to, because also i think it made me more human in a way to the people in my team as well where like i turned around and i said actively to people that were struggling were telling me that we're yeah. struggling i was like go see someone i'll help you like and it helps you play the role of a therapist to them in the early stages because you almost emulate the conversations that have been said to you and you play the role of like the agony aunt but also the first step to solving it is naming yeah. it right <laughs> yeah the first time my therapist told me is like oh you have some depressive thoughts i was like whoa 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 what is this d word that we're using like i don't need to be called anything <laughs> or you know classified into any sort of form and then you like you have to work through it and it's fine and like i by no means have you know a high degree of problem so i don't want to diminish people that have more serious mental health issues but i also think that it's unhealthy to say oh i don't need to go to therapy because i'm fine i came from a healthy you know background in life but like no everybody should seek help and yeah. it's good i completely and it helps agree you perform better it does help you perform better and even if it just helps you have a bit of mental clarity when you go into something yeah absolutely and some people use sport as a form of therapy like sometimes i'll you know go out for a run or go play volleyball and and that has been a catharsis for me to feel better but even even football fans going to the football is an outlet for them to escape what's going on back at home yeah but talk about it yeah no, i completely agree and it, it kind of feels a bit bad to be ending this episode there because uh, it's almost quite a powerful message um but but yeah i echo your thoughts there and like I said, I've been through that journey myself and, and seen a therapist. But I would just say, yeah, don't don't be afraid to do it. Absolutely. Perfect. Well, look, Julia, thanks so much and, uh, and good luck in future. Thank you. Thanks for having me. 